Well, the context of this section uh, in chapter 4, verses 7 and following, uh, really just through 7 through 11, is based upon the end of all things is at hand. So if the end of all things is at hand, and certainly it is more so today than the day Peter wrote this, we see that there is a terminus to this age. And that requires something of us to understand that uh, there is multiple commands that we endure. And then the question is, well, how? How do we stand fast? How do we endure? And this is what Peter wants to aid us in, and all of his readers. And we've looked last week at the necessity of prayer as a foundation of enduring to the end. That if we do not pray, uh, that we are not engaging with our God who has the wisdom, the power, the strength uh, to direct us, to guard us, to establish us. These are the requirements we have, that we lay out before him the needs that we have, the needs that each other have, that we pray for one another, that this needs to be a high priority of the Christian life, that if we do not practice this on a moment-by-moment basis, that we are conversing with God, not only in the formal settings, and we don't abandon the formal settings, uh, do we not only do it in our corporate settings, and we don't ever abandon those either, that we do it in our daily thought life, that it is a relationship that we have with God that is not foreign to any conversation, any patterns of life that we have, that he is involved with us and us with him. And so as we apply God's word to our life, uh, we find ourselves engaging with him more and more, that we can be thankful to him on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. And this is really the foundation of the concept of praying without ceasing. It's not just a prayerful attitude. It is a mindfulness that we are in a relationship with God that is permanent in a sense that there is no time that he is not there. And as an understanding of that, that I am engaging with him in every decision-making, in every action, in every conversation, that he is the partner with me there in that. And so uh, we, we give our, these needs to him in prayer. Certainly, we need to be praying for one another, which requires us to have a relationship with another, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Uh, and we're going to uh, n- recognize the need to be in prayer with God's people that we are gathering together in prayer, that there is value there, that God has commanded that, that we do not forsake that, but that we uh, don't use it in place of a personal prayer life, that somehow that's real praying, and uh, my other conversations are not, but we do recognize its necessity, that we need to be about, that our worship is incomplete if it is not bathed in prayer. And so while we have a half-hour prayer service, and we usually end up about 15 or 20 minutes of praying before our evening service, that hopefully all of our ministry um, in Sunday school, in worship service this morning, tonight, uh, our word of life is all bathed in prayer. That it is, that this is the, the fuel that we need to stand in the evil day.
and that rather than doing less of it, we need to be doing more of that, casting our cares upon him, because it is certain in the end times we will have much to be concerned about. We'll have more to cast on him, not less. And that as we do so, we are invoking the faith that we have that we trust him to care for us, to manage these affairs that are quite frankly beyond us. <laughs> and so prayer is vital. This is our relation with God. It is an exercise of our faith, relationship with him. Having established that, we come to the next necessary element if we're going to stand fast uh, and endure in these last days. And verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now you hear those first few words, I said, well, you just said that prayer was paramount. It is. In your relationship with God, prayer is paramount. Now, when we come into your relationship with one another, we have another paramount, another most important, and that is that we love one another, and that this uh, concept is not new to any of us. It's certainly uh, not new to the scriptures. Peter here is not invoking some mind-boggling uh, information. Uh, we read through the Gospels. We read through every author of scripture, and we can firmly conclude that that the love we have for one another uh, on multiple levels is one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. Uh, that it, it, it is inconceivable that you can say that I have this wonderful right relation with God and not have a love, at least for the brotherhood, for the brethren, for other believers, and certainly beyond that to even the lost. That we love them with the love of the Lord. And that we have in our disposition toward people uh, that word, and in this case, uh, of course, we know there's Greek, multiple Greek words for love, and in this case, it is agape, which is that moral uh, bearing, that that social uh, concern for others. Again, as as we've talked about in the past, although we flipped it recent years. Uh, phileo love is really considered one of the highest loves in, in Greek and Roman thought, and, and agape not far behind that. And it's that whole idea that I'm going to uh, consider others and their needs as a priority of life. I'm going to make this commitment. We're not talking about your emotions. We're not talking about your feelings. Uh, love is not resident there. Uh, that's where uh, love is resident in your will, your heart. It is not, and that's why we say, I heart this. What we think of is that's feelings, and that's not a biblical concept at all. And you've heard me say this many, many times. Your feelings are in your gut, and so that's your bowels, bowels of tender mercies. We have feelings. Uh, these happen in biblical pattern in your bowels. In your heart is your will, and thus love is a choice. We are talking about another not whether or not you get along with people, not whether you like people. We are talking about making a choice to love them, to have their concern, their needs, their uh, interests as a primary concern in your life. And so he says that above all, we should have fervent love, not just some love, but fervent love. And 
and in the old King James, used to use the word charity in this sense, uh, that we have charity toward one another. And of course, uh, this is also shared by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be going there shortly. Um, and many other passages. And you might say, well, why the, the switching from love to charity? And a lot of it's context. But in, in the, again, the social element of this, and that's why it says love one another. That this is a mutual caring for each other, and thus it requires a social element. You cannot say, I love others, and then isolate yourself from them. Isolation is the polar opposite of what it means to love one another. It involves engagement. I'm going to have you as part of my life, and, and I'm going to have my life available to you. And that that social element is absolutely necessary. God created you as social creatures. We thrive in social settings. Whether you are a social bug or a wallflower, uh, you still thrive there. You still have a necessity for that interaction. And on a Christian level, we have it on a spiritual height that doesn't diminish it but requires more. It elevates this concept. Though you have a right relationship with God and you can be content in that, uh, and, and sometimes to stand fast, it might seem like we're being isolated, but we know I have this active prayer life, I've cast his cares upon him, I have this relationship with God, therefore I'm never lonely. Yet I also recognize that I have a directive from God to share in that relationship laterally with others other believers. And so I recognize the great benefit that God has established in establishing society uh, for me and for me to serve others, for them. And that God calls us to this. And so we have this fervent, this driving care for one another, that I cannot simply isolate myself and be and claim ignorance and disinterest in the needs and concerns of others. That as I am exposed to them, and as I uh, grasp them, that I recognize that I have a need not only to say, I'm going to pray for you, brother, uh, but to do something. To put that commitment into practice. Why is this so necessary at the end of the age? Why is this such a requirement? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that there are going to be perilous times. It's going to be difficult. And in, in difficult times, it is those that strand together that are strengthened. And, and Proverbs tells that, uh, uh, you know, you have two, you have two individuals come together, they're stronger than one, and a three-stranded cord is not easily broken that we bring three together, and now we recognize the strength of that. And as you look around, and if you have ever done anything with, with uh, stranded wire or rope, uh, you'll notice that any one of those strands is fairly easy to break. You get a copper strand that's just like your hair thickness, it, it's not necessarily that easy to break, but you start stranding 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 of them, it's always an even number. I don't know why. Uh, together, you realize, wow, what strength there is there. And the same thing with rope. You can take very 
thin rope that you could say, well, I could probably break that. You strand 20 of those or 17 of those together, and suddenly you're picking up things many times your weight. The concept of the end times, how am I going to stand, is not going to be you against everyone. They say, well, with me and the Lord, um, we can accomplish anything, and I would approve that statement. Uh, but Bible makes it very clear that you have an, a, re, a responsibility. If you have that kind of relationship with God that gives you that kind of confidence, you have an obligation to share that with others to help them. When we talk about a stranded cord, is in areas where one is weak, the others are strong, and they keep that one from breaking to keep all of them from breaking. Where your strengths are, maybe where my weaknesses are, where my, where my strengths are, maybe where your weaknesses are. And so God calls us together in these end times because it is necessary we have fervent love for one another. And so we have commitment to one another. And when we talk about love... Um, we have a lot of weird ideas out there of what it means to show love to one another. And there's people that go around and hug and I love you and all this stuff. And I'm not one of those. Um, it's just not me. Um, my kids are like, Dad, you never told us you loved us. I said, no, I tell you every day because I take care of you every day. I just don't walk around and have to broadcast it that way. Um, and so I'm not that kind. Uh, but others are, and that's okay, you know, you express that. Um, but we're going to delve into a section of love that we seldom associate with love in our modern era, but the Bible never negates it. It never neglects this aspect of love, and here it is in this verse. That if you want to really ex understand what they mean by love one another, you need to understand the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. If you do not understand that concept, you do not understand what it means to love someone. And again, as I shared, you can like people who you get along with, who you are always in agreement with. It's easy to like them and then to confuse that with loving them. And, and say, oh, you know, I'll do anything for them because I like them, because we see eye to eye, because we are in agreement, because um, their personality is appealing to me, or maybe just their physical features are appealing to me. And so I, I am attracted to them. We have chemistry. We have all those concepts, and they have nothing to do with love covers a multitude of sins in their definition. Unless you think this is an isolated thing, this is really quoting something out of some other scripture. So let's put together a few passages, oh, a handful, that's five, right? A handful of passages to uh, understand this concept of the love we're talking about is a love that says, I can deal with other sinners. In a just and beneficial way. So let's go to where he's quoting it from. Let's go to Proverbs. If you want to jump over to Proverbs. 
Uh, there's actually a couple of Proverbs we're going to be looking at. Um, let's start Proverbs 10, where it's stated very clearly. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, um, is likely what he is quoting. Very quick verse. It'll take you longer to get there than it will be for me to read it. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. We're going to come back to that, so you might want to mark it somehow, um, because it gives us a great understanding of what it means to cover up, cover sins. Uh, let's just jump over a, a few, uh, few pages. Let's just stay in Proverbs, Proverbs 17. It's not one of the primary ones. Proverbs 17, 9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. This is a very important principle to uh, Solomon in his Proverbs, and it's repeated elsewhere as well, but because I'm going to limit myself to a handful, we're going to press on. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this as the love chapter, so you probably weren't surprised to get here. Um, but in terms of covering for sin, we want to see its reference here. We'll begin in uh, verse 3. It says, And though I bestow all my goods to the feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not speak its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity or sins, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also, also am known. And now by faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then if you'll turn with me lastly to James. I'm going to piece these together. And you'll be hearing me referencing these various passages um, from here forward. James is right before Peter. So we're back to our Peter passage here. The very last ver two verses of the book of James, chapter 5, 19 and following. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, we now start to understand that this love that all of the New Testament writers talk about and draw us to and call us to uh, is something to do with sin. That we're not called to love people that are nice to us, but to, we're dealing with sinful people. 
that what we're engaging with and the expression of what true love means in a biblical social, in agape love, what charity engages in, is right now I'm dealing with not just imperfect people, but people who are sinful. Sometimes even sinning against me. And yet it will not diminish my concern and commitment to them. That though they... Uh, oppose me, though they uh, sin against me, though they might with their mouth speak against me, I will not uh, reciprocate that kind of activity because I have made a commitment to love them. This is what is in, involved when we talk about love your enemies and to do good to those that despitefully use you. And again, we find it over and over again throughout the scripture, we're not talking about reserving love only for those that are our benefactors or that we get along with or are treating us justly or fairly. That we genuinely have the welfare in mind of these others and we are humbly submitting all of our resources to meet their needs even as they do injury to us even as they speak against us, even as they sin against us, or against God, or against others. Now, does this mean we're blind to their sin? No. Emphatically, no. When it says love covers a multitude of sin, it is not that we are ignoring sin. And I read those other passages so you get an understanding of what that entails. <clears throat> We are not talking about just turning a blind eye to their sin. And I've seen too many people, especially parents, but too many people in churches just do that. Well, you know, they give a lot of money and we can turn a blind eye to that. No, you can't. That is not what covering a multitude of sins is. Let's bring this into God's love. <laughs> okay? Does God just turn a blind eye to people's sins? No. In fact, as the righteous judge, you will judge them for their sin in eternal death, uh, separation from God, in misery in this life, and, and physical death, eternal death. He obviously judges the sins of men. So what does it mean that we say, for God so loved the world, he just covered up all their sin? We certainly know there's something in between there, right? Between God's love and the separation of sin from being accounted to me to me being accounted righteous. There's, something in, there's an intermediate there that while it is not spoken of here or in Proverbs, it is referenced in some other passages, we hopefully can bring the rest of the passages to bear here and understand what it means to cover. Let's use a different word. Let's use a real theological word. To atone for sins. Atonement means to cover. To pay the price for. 
That is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That that is the way our sins are removed, are covered, are atoned for is by God taking the extraordinary effort to love those who hated him and to make provision for them to be released from the penalty of sin and eventually even the presence of sin. This is the activity. Now, having read the Proverbs that both talk about our speech, having read James, hopefully we have, Proverbs would be showing us a little bit of the negative, and by the negative we can extrapolate the positive. What does it mean to cover sins? By looking at what does it mean, the opposite of that. And in Proverbs we have in chapter 10, Again, 17, uh, what is it? You have stirring up strife, using our speech against people, or are you using speech to foster an opportunity for them to have their sins dealt with, covered? You see, we can either keep uh, reminding people of their sin, accusing them of it, and, and just persisting in that, of, making, of, of trying to load guilt upon guilt upon guilt with no end in sight. That is, there's no escape route. It just keeps putting on us and putting on us and putting on us, and, and there's no relief ever. And there is simply condemnation. And when Jesus Christ says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, that's what it is to create strife, to use our words to create strife, to keep saying, I'll never forgive you. You've done so many bad things to me, I'll never forgive you. You're sowing strife. Now you have, you'll never have a relationship with that person because they know that you have this grudge against them because of something they have done to you. And you've communicated that over and over again. You've not made a means for reconciliation. Does God want reconciliation? Yes, but does he just ignore what broke the relationship in the beginning with? No, that's not what it means that love covers a multitude. It says, I just ignore their sin. And those that want to say that don't, don't have any grasp of, of the biblical model presented to us by God himself. But rather, I come and I approach sinful people the way God approached me and said, you're a sinful person. And do you want to stay like that? Is that who you want to be? And I, my children have grown up. Is this who you want to be? Do you want to be a liar? Do you want to be a cheat? Do you want to be the... Is this who you want to be in your relationships with your family, with your church, with your society at large? Is this who you want to be? What am I doing? I'm inviting them out of that sin into a right relationship with people so we can cover that sin. That sin can be dealt with. And we don't have to keep rehearsing it and keep reminding us, this is the barrier, this is the barrier, this is the barrier. No, it's, this is how we get rid of the barrier. We don't ignore the sin. Oh, I just forgot. It's been long enough now. You can come back and forget the sin. No. Time is not the tool to deal with sin. A lot of people act like that. 
I've seen people in their relationships, they get mad at each other, they have a row, they, they, they don't talk to each other for weeks and weeks, and then all of a sudden, after time, they, they get back and they fix it all back up until the next round. They're breaking up, and it's like a yo-yo. It's a roller coaster ride in their life of relationships. And I'm like, I don't think that's God's design. That's not really love from a biblical perspective. That's not agape. Because what I notice is that as soon as they argue, they remember all the other arguments that never really got resolved. It's just they waited till they could get over their feelings of betrayal or feelings of hurt or injury. And this isn't recovery. This is not reconciliation. And that's why the cycle is never broken. Love seeks to break that cycle of sin. By saying, let's correct this. It involves a process, and hopefully we understand the process. Because if we don't understand the process, we're going to communicate wrong things to people. What is the process? God loves us. Okay, is our sin gone? No. God loves us, so it moved him to action. The action he took was to make provision for the atonement of the world's sin. He made provision to take away the sins of the world. Not just the elect, but the world. The Bible says that very pointedly. For those who believe and those who don't believe, um, he has died for their sin. He has made provision. Does, is that sufficient to remove the guilt of sin from you? No. We know that at providing it is an act of God's love. And then we, he waits. He offers the invitation. He says, come and partake of my provision. And then he waits for you to respond. That response is shown in the form of repentance, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It is the form of faith, of trusting in Christ, and saying, I will accept or I'll receive that provision that you made to take care of my sin. Knowing that once my sin is cared for, now I can enter into a reconciled relationship with you and we can be God and creature. We can be father and son. I can be a child of God. I can have this intimacy with God. But we also understand that that really begins with God's love to make provision for a way that I can then receive and that then he will accomplish. That is the means of dealing with sin. And we see that. Let's, since we're right here in Peter, let's go back to James. That's the last one we read. What does this say? That we say, when you see someone wandering from the truth, and that, that you're going to try to turn him back. He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You are engaging in this process where your love should be reflecting God's love, saying, I am going to work at whatever it takes to provide a way for this person to deal with their sin so that we don't have that sin between us anymore. Now, you'll find many in the Christian psychology movement that say, well, you have to forgive those people who have sinned against you. Uh, and I, I dealt a lot with that in, in different ministry settings. Um, when you read any book about 
those that have been uh, sexually abused, um, as children even, well, you have to forgive the abuser. And I was like, well, that's not really accurate. That's not really what the Bible calls us. God doesn't carte blank forgive people, does he? He waits for them. He provides an avenue for forgiveness and waits for them to travel that avenue to him. That's a big difference between you saying, I forgive all the people that have ever done injury to me, uh, da-da. Is there a time, place for that kind of activity? Yes, we're going to talk about it here in a little bit. But primarily, overwhelmingly, the majority of the time, what we are calling, what we are doing in our love is saying, here, I have provided this avenue. It is the same avenue that God has provided. I am reaching out to you because I recognize you're the one who has offended me. Uh, I'm reaching out to you and communicating that you have sinned against me, and yet I am giving you this means to access and to restore and to fix this relationship. And that avenue is that you, we tell our children to do that, are sorry. That you request forgiveness. That you acknowledge what you did was wrong. And if you think that's easy to do these days, let me tell you, it is not easy to do. Because most people are walking around justifying their sin. Well, it's the liquor, it's the way God made me, it's just the way I am, um, this is how I'm wired, I've had people tell me that, and I'm like, um, no, that's wrong answer. Um, what you're doing is wrong, and it's going to have ill effect in your life, and it's breaking relationships left and right around you, and you're going to have to correct this. And denial isn't going to make it there, and, and rationalizing away your behavior. So this is just who I am. Uh, well, that doesn't cut it. Does it cut it before God? No. What makes you think it's going to cut it laterally if it doesn't cut it vertically with God? No. Rather, we wait for them to acknowledge their sin and come and confess it before us and then say what needs to be done to make this right. And if you then say, I'll never forgive you, now it's in your court. You are showing that you don't love them. And at that point, you're showing a bitterness that betrays your spiritual condition. But rather, when they do come and they make that confession, we come to engage between Jesus and Peter. Well, how many times do I have to forgive them? Seven? I can keep track of seven. No, 490. Okay. I'm going to have to really keep good records. 70 times seven not calling you to keep better records. He's calling you to do what the Bible says, that love does not keep record of wrongs. We don't keep that record. We are working on a day-to-day -day basis that today you have done this, and today you confess that. The day you confess that, we've worked through this, and now we are starting again at zero. We are not going to 
keep track of that in the past anymore because we've covered that sin. Now, what what if they sin against me again like that? Well, you set up the exact same circumstance. You sinned against me. You've broken our relationship. Um, I love you, um, but under the conditions, you're going to, until you come this same avenue, we're going to have a strained relationship, a broken relationship. But not because I don't want a relationship with you, but because your sin must be confessed and repented of, turned away from, change your mind about that, so you can come back and have a right relationship with me. And we're talking more than just say you're sorry. We're talking about truly being sorrowful for that and for the damage it has done and wanting to purge that from your life, which is the most difficult part of that scenario, isn't it? We all have habitual sin that we're struggling with before Christ. And we're thankful that he is patient with us to forgive us more than 70 times 7 even. And so we are seeking to save a soul from death by turning them away from patterns of sin to patterns of righteousness. And that doesn't happen in single events. It doesn't happen necessarily in seven times, uh, seven events. Sometimes it takes many, many events. But we're looking for return. We're looking for them to turn away and to seek restoration. And we extend that. That's what it means when it talks about love crumbling a multitude of sins. I'm not adding to the strife between us. The sin has created a barrier between us. I'm prepared in love to remove that barrier, but I, and I'll provide the, we, the means, the, the mechanism, the avenue. You're going to have to choose to take that. And we're not just going to sit and wait for you to just wait and hope I forget how Sinful you are. That's a horrible way to try to maintain relationships with people when there's no remorse, when there's no sorrow, when there's no repentance, there's no confession. Uh, The idea that somehow you can maintain a relationship with someone under those conditions that'll be beneficial is wrong. You are not helping them. You are destroying them. If you want to save a soul from death, you must turn them from their way. You must turn them back to Christ. A blind eye, a faux ignorance is not helpful and is not loving. It is not what the Bible means by love covers a multitude of sins. We have seen it being practiced that way, however, don't, haven't we? We've seen the parents who know their children are involved in even illegal activity and won't turn them in and, and will lie for them and cover up for them. Uh, a family, usually it's within family members, uh, good friends. Oh, you know, lie for me, cover up for me. Yeah, and, and I've seen it happen you know, within churches. Cover this up for me. Cover this up for me. I'm like, no, the way to deal with this sin is not to do a cover-up in sense of hiding it from knowledge. It is to atone for that sin 
through confession, repentance, and then we can have restoration, reconciliation, all those wonderful rewords. That's rewarding. Then we can have it right. But no, we want to go about and say, oh, if you love me, you'll hide and not let this come out. No, that's not what this says. Model of church discipline tells us how this works, right? We go to that person privately, confront them with their sin, invite them to repentance, and if they repent, it's done. Why? Because the avenue has been accessed and they don't, it doesn't need to go any further, generally speaking. Now, it does say that if you remember, before you bring your gift to the altar, you remember who you've sinned against, you should go make that right before you present that. Such your responsibility. And a great example is that of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gets a right relation with God. What's the first thing he says? I'm going to make things right with other people that I have stolen from, essentially. That's the evidence of a change, of repentance. And, and what a wonderful testimony that tax collector had in that community from there on, huh? I'm going to make it right, not just by giving back what, you, what I took too much from you, but I'm going to give it back to you with interest, fourfold. And so we recognize that there is that, that element of it, but in terms of between you and me and my confrontation, it's completed. If you don't get, take that route, if you don't access that, that provision of making it right, then we go and we say, okay, I'm going to take someone else with me. I'm going to go to the leaders of the church and bring them here into this. And then ultimately we're going to go to the whole church. What is the whole purpose of that church discipline model is that at each step, if they respond, it's done. It has covered the sin. Finished. And there's no reason to progress. The progression is there not to embarrass or shame or to bring strife in their life. The, the progression is there to save them, to turn them back to Christ that we could deliver their soul from death. And that is the loving act that Peter is referring to. Why would we need that at the end of the age? Oh, we understand we need social, we need caring people, we need to get together and be bonded, all those things that, that, but why is it that the one predominant thing that Peter says, when you get to the end of all things at hand, what you really need is a love that can cover sin properly. Well, Jesus Christ tells us why we need that kind of love. Because in the end of the age, children will turn against parents. And they will have you put to death or imprisoned. Parents will turn against children, have them imprisoned, put to death. Brother will turn against brother and sister against sister and and suddenly we have this scenario where who do I trust? 
And when these who you count as close relatives who are operating outside of the love of Christ, outside of the righteousness of Christ, who are negatively impacting you dramatically, then you will need this kind of love for one another. How can you forgive the one who gives your name to the authorities and where you are at and how to get you? How do you keep open channels of opportunity for them to get right with God? And they think they've done the world a favor because they've turned you in. Isn't that the scenario God's word declares? They will think that they have done something good by turning you in. And you might say, well, what kind of scenario would be like that? That it's good for the world if I turn in this group of people who are not complying with the mandates. You don't think it's coming to that. You haven't been paying attention very much. It's going on right now in some countries. Can you still love and open up those means of though you do this injury to me, I will do no injury to you. I will keep this door open. Not to ignore your sin, but because of your sin, that you, if you will repent, if you will confess, if you will have that sorrow over your sin, I will receive you. I will forgive you. There's probably no time in the history of the world that is more necessary to stand fast in your faith than in the end when it will be that dangerous to trust people. Because the human part of you is going to say, don't trust anyone, isolate from everyone. And then we have God's word that says, be a testimony, be a light. And you realize there's a lot of risk involved in that one day. At the end of the age, there will be a great risk. Do you love enough to keep those doors of reconciliation open toward people who are doing injury to you and your family and your church. Do we have that love of God that says, though you slaughter my son, he is dying and being slaughtered by you to save you? Do we have that kind of love to put our lives on the line to cover people's sins? We have some excellent examples in God's word. I'll just pick on one. Stephen, I think, is a great example. Don't hold this against them. Jesus himself, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not put this sin to their account. That is a love that covers sin. Whatever sin they have done against me, Lord, ignore. That in your judgment, the only sin that 
to judge them by his sins against you. Don't judge them by the sins they did against me. And those are very difficult statements, and, and I want you to notice the basis of those statements is always the ignorance of men. That they did this thinking they were helping the world, thinking they were doing good, ignorant of the fact that what they were doing was in fact evil. And why would that be so necessary at the end of this age? Because men will call good evil and evil good, and in their ignorance, they will sin against the believer. They will sin against you, your closest confidant, your closest family members, your friends. They will sin against you, thinking they are doing something good for the world. That is why. And it is in those instances where in their ignorance, they do a horrible act of violence. Peter was stoned to death by people who thought they were doing the right thing because this guy's a heretic. Jesus Christ was crucified. People thought they were doing the right thing. All the religious leaders told them to do it. Don't count that sin against them because they didn't understand the truth. Now, that is very different than those who know the truth. And in selfish or malevolent willfulness did the, perpetrated this evil. Why do you think Jesus spoke so harshly against the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because they knew the truth. They weren't functioning out of an evil they weren't in the midst of mob justice. They were the directors of it. They were the instigators of it, knowing the truth, knowing who Jesus was, knowing how he fulfilled all the prophecies, and yet rejecting him. And for that, they will be held accountable. How can I distinguish between them, Pastor? It's not always that easy, is it? But can we pray, going back to prayer, for those that stand and use their authority to justify the persecution of Christians and will even hold everybody else's coat while they stone you to death? Can we pray for that guy? His name is Saul. Love says I can. Love drives me to do that. And Saul recognized that he was the chief of sinners and he got it right with God and, and submitted to the Holy One and became, of course, Paul, who has written so much of your scriptures. Think that guy understood what it meant to cover a multitude of sins? The guy who yelled out, don't count these against them, one of the guys standing there was Saul. This is why love, this kind of love is so requisite in the end of the age because there's going to be so much betrayal. You are going to be sinned against. And you can walk around and grumble and complain that it's just unfair, it's not right, it's, it's not 
constitutional. You can, it's not legal. You can do all of that till you're blue in the face. It will make no difference. But if you choose to love one another fervently, it will make the extraordinary difference. Not necessarily in your life, because you might end up dead anyway, but in their life. Because of the testimony that you had to them and that extension of the offer and of the provision of a way of reconciliation. But don't shortchange that. Don't, don't cut that out. Don't cut out that intermediate step and think that, well, I have to love them so I have to turn a blind eye to their sin. No, no, no. Hold them responsible for that sin so that it can be correctly addressed, can be correctly uh, removed so we can have true reconciliation. Love calls us to this is what we need in the end of the age. It is certain you will need this kind of love. For within the church itself, you're going to have sinfulness against one another. If you think it's going to happen within families and not church families, you overestimate the church. It's filled with sinners. And some of them will blindly and ignorantly follow not God's word, but the world. Imagine that. Carnal Christians will follow the world and think turning you in is the right thing to do. Now you understand what it means to love fervently one another, to cover one another's sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this help today in realizing what it will require for us to stand fast in our faith in the end days, these days. Lord, give us this kind of commitment to others that you have shown toward us so abundantly. Lord, we recognize that much of what we consider people sinning against us is really pretty mild compared to what's coming and to what has been, and what really is going on in other lands already today. Lord, keep us mindful of this passage, of what is required of us to stand fast, to not be, allow ourselves to be driven to bitterness, to vengeance, to hatefulness. Lord, we recognize you've called us to Root that out. Do not let it take root in our hearts and our lives and our minds. And we know that it is love that will enable it. Lord, we also recognize that it begins maybe with our speech, of being careful not to stir up strife, not to keep reminding of the sin, but of communicating the means and the provision for reconciliation. Lord, you've told us that, and you have blessed, you've blessed the peacemakers. Lord, help us to be known 
for that, not in a worldly way, but in a biblical, divine manner. We might seek peace and pursue it. Even among, and maybe especially among those who are abusing and being toward, abusing us, especially those in their ignorance. Having trusted this world and Satan himself and their own flesh. Lord, help us to love that one that they might turn back and have their soul saved from death. Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.